0: Hello, everyone. Very warm welcome to this conversation with Sir Jeremy Farrar, the director of the Wellcome Trust, on the occasion of his new book, Spike, The Virus Versus the People, which I think I can show you now. Um, Written, uh, also calling itself The Inside Story, written with Anjana Ahuja, the distinguished science writer and published, of course, last week. Many of you may have read it already. I'm Roman Maddox, the director of the Institute. Before we kick off, some really brief housekeeping which you may be familiar with. If you join many of our events, do start sending your questions in as soon as you like through the Q&A panel on the right of your your screen. Um, Perhaps limit yourself to one or two each. Uh, If you'd like to, do include your name or where you're viewing from. It's really interesting for us to know. We're going to be live tweeting from IFG events using the hashtag IFGFARA, so you can follow and tweet along there too. There's also going to be a video and sound recording of this on our website within 24 hours. And many thanks indeed to the Wellcome Trust for working with us on a wide range of discussions, although today Jeremy Farrar is speaking here in a personal capacity, as as indeed he has written this book. A lot of you won't need any introduction to him, but let me give you um, one anyway, um, with some of the the key features of of a, a very wide ranging career that has brought him to the forefront of the debate about the UK's handling of the coronavirus response. He's been the director of the Wellcome Trust since 2013, the latest stage in a career very much focused on global health and infectious disease. Before joining Wellcome, he spent nearly 20 years at the Hospital for Tropical Diseases in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam, leading the clinical research unit there. And of course, he's been uh, centre stage in the government's response or in debating the government's response to the coronavirus pandemic as a member of SAGE and the UK Vaccine Task Force. His views on that response are set out in this book and what we're about to uh, talk about today. Jeremy, a very warm welcome.
1: Thank you very much indeed.
0: Let's start from where we are right now before we delve into some of the points you've made about this extraordinary 18 months. So Freedom Day, good or bad? I've
1: been uh, been in favour of of lifting restrictions. I I think the... um, the way that the uh, advice and in seed decisions been made over the last few weeks and months have actually uh, been been good, very good. Um, I think that the key has been that the, the um, restrictions since when March or April time have been lifted in a, in a staggered uh, way with a time lag between lifting this restriction and going on to the next one of about four or five weeks to allow the data to catch up. And uh, I think, you know, I have been uh, very supportive of the lifting of the final restrictions on the 19th of July, with the caveats uh, that have been made very clear, I think, particularly by Chris Whitty, that that they must be gradual and they must be cautious. Um, And I think the continued wearing of masks, for instance, on public transport, uh, has been a very wise move. Um, but in the end, we'll have to look at the data over the course of the next what uh, month or so to see what um, what that's going to tell us. But at the moment, I would be cautiously optimistic, yes.
0: OK, that's great. Though so if we had been meeting in person, if we had got there on the London tube, I'd be surprised if we saw more than two thirds of the people wearing masks, judging from what I've uh, seen and heard recently. OK, let's jump back to the beginning of your book, which you, you tell more or less in um, chronological Order drawing on your past, obviously in this area of infectious disease. Um, How seriously were you? How early were you worried, really worried about what was coming out of China? Uh, Through uh,
1: certainly the middle of January, from about the 10th of January. Um, It's really important, I think, when we talk about this, and we'll come back to this later. I suspect as well, it's it's this event can't be seen in isolation um we need to put this event in the context of the last 20 years and the series of warnings going back to an epidemic which few now will have remembered or heard of at the time which was caused by something called Nipah virus in malaysia in 1999 uh, and then through sars-1 mers in the middle east zika ebola in west africa of course the pandemic of 2009 uh bird flu itself h5m1 in vietnam etc and 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 all of those, um, in essence, were giving us a warning that the world is changing. Ecological change, urbanisation, animal-human interfaces, trade and travel was changing the nature of the world we're living in. And I think the recent High Level Panel International report calling this essentially a pandemic era, I think is spot on. Um, And so when you put all that together and in the first two weeks of January, when uh, it became clear there was a, a, now a coronavirus, it was, uh, the genome was released on the 10th of January. Um, And that there was by the 24th, published in The Lancet, um, clear evidence of human to human transmission and critically asymptomatic transmission suspected, confirmed in February. I think there you have in it a respiratory virus come across from the animal sector Um, for which we had no diagnostic tests, no treatment and no vaccines. And we had assumed at that moment no immunity uh, and would be spread by uh, the respiratory route. And that there was asymptomatic infection as well as very severe infections and tragically deaths. That has all the red flags uh, by the 24th of January that this was going to be a major event.
0: And this is despite the fact that the Chinese government did not rush to... uh publicise this this fact and some of the fascinating early bits in your book are are about the Chinese scientists trying to get this information out and how could it be got out Um, what should we make of and how should we deal with China's you know reluctance to acknowledge or to tell the world that this virus was there and indeed that it had had the sequence
1: yeah I think there was a delay Uh, I think the delay probably accounted a reasonable delay in the sense of of Uh, people think that identifying a cluster of pneumonias uh, in a city of 11 million people is trivial. It isn't easy. You you, you know, it's less, it's much harder than you think it might be. Most people with a pneumonia actually don't get a diagnosis established. Uh, Seeing clusters when people go to different hospitals, I'm not in any way trying to defend that delay at all, Uh, but it is harder than you think. And improving surveillance, improving the, the reporting of clusters Improving the reporting of unusual diseases like a lot of people coming in with very severe pneumonia that doesn't respond is critical and we need to get that quicker. Uh, uh, So there was an inbuilt delay. And then there was a delay that was probably about 10 days, maybe a little bit longer, two weeks in the release of the genome sequence. Having the, the sequence of the virus released was critically important because that allows people in other countries uh, to start preparing diagnostic tests, and without diagnostic tests you're 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 blind to what's going on. so that was critical. and then the twenty fourth of January when The Lancet then published uh, um the human to human transmission uh, story, that has to get quicker um and and critically, when that information is released, then both China but also critically the rest of the world then needs to act then mm. not not later not. Six weeks later, because uh, uh, if it, if ever in an epidemic, Ebola or COVID or SARS one, if you get behind exponential increasing number of cases, you can never really catch up until you go through that wave. And and early responses in a period of uncertainty uh, are far more important in some ways than later responses when you have certainty.
0: Mm. I'll come on to those responses in a second, but just staying on China, um, one of the fascinating bits in this book is uh, how you describe changing your view on the origins of the virus. Um, from thinking for a period that China, it, it might, there was a good case that this had come out of the the lab in, in Wuhan and you acquired a burner phone and all kinds of things you'd never imagined you'd have to do to, in order to discuss this, to thinking, um, no, uh, the scientific evidence is on the side of it developing naturally. Where are you now and is there room for doubt?
1: Yeah, I I think it's, in my view, it's an example of the way the scientific process develops Um, and in, in the book in, in early January with a very, very first look at the genome sequence, um, there were features in it, which when you first looked at it, led, led myself to, I think I say this in the book, to have a 50, 50 perspective of, of whether this was. Um, uh, uh, a laboratory accident uh, or a natural event. Actually, as the data then accrued through uh, February and through into March, uh, with people far more expert in analysing viral genomics than I am, uh, the weight of the scientific evidence uh, strongly supported that the most likely origin was a natural event, that this was another zoonotic infection that means originated in animals came across into humans probably not once but probably multiple times over maybe a few months in 2019 and like sars-1 like hiv like ebola uh, uh, evolved into being a much more efficient human pathogen and then led to a, a massive outbreak in wuhan in in december and january of 2020. i think over the course of the last 18 months that is still where the weight of scientific evidence points, both from uh, John Snow-like epidemiology of Wuhan and where the cases uh, first reported, the clusters of cases, and also critically the genomic analysis of both the early strains and subsequent strains. Can I totally exclude or can scientists totally exclude a laboratory accident? No. Uh, And that's why I think calling for transparency on all sides is critical from, yes, the Chinese authorities, I believe, under the auspices of the World Health Organization, the the ability to look into the laboratory, but also to look into the animal reservoirs that still exist across much of Asia and indeed many parts of the world. And my worry for this from a geopolitical stance is I believe the world is actually very, very unsafe at the moment. these animal viruses will continue to circulate, uh, coronaviruses or other viruses. And at the moment, I'm afraid we've, we've got ourselves into a position where international cooperation on animal viruses and animal-human uh, clusters is not happening. Mm. Um, and if that goes on for any length of time, a month, two months, a year, five years, then I think the world will not have good sight of uh, further events that may happen. And uh, I hope we can, row back from that tension and uh, get back to the international cooperation that's so critical if we want to prevent events like this happening in the future.
0: I mean just ask you one or two things about that March lockdown and the decisions that went to it. Um, One uh, you you say even with the hindsight you say in the book you don't think UK borders should have been shut in March 2020 if I've got that right. Um, Is that right and 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 if so why? Yeah
1: I, I you know this is is uh where retrospect and at the time at, at, at the time i certainly felt that uh, again evidence from previous epidemics um, has been that border controls um, depend on the type of border you have firstly uh, uh, new zealand for instance very different situation to the uk both islands of course but very different connectivity and the uk is is incredibly connected as a country uh, border controls, buy you time, uh, they have to be, as New Zealand's case, absolute to have their real impact. And as in New Zealand's case, they have to be in place for now, what, 18 months, essentially, in, in New Zealand's case. And Britain is far more connected than New Zealand and both for every reason, including access to food that comes in and is imported through, um, through Europe, of course. But the other reason why border controls, I think, if they had been in place and... Yes, now I would say that the border controls, if they'd been complete, would have delayed things and bought some time uh, for the UK. But they would have had to be in place, I think, in January and Mm -hmm. they'd have had to have been total. Uh, Border controls, for instance, from China uh, to the UK would have had, I think, marginal impact because most importations to the UK came from the half term holidays in the middle of February. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they came from British residents returning to the UK from from uh, from continental Europe. So so I think if the border controls had been impactful, they would have had to have been probably the end of January. They'd have had to be an absolute and they would certainly have had to focus on returning travellers from Europe. And even now, I suspect that would have been extraordinarily difficult to implement.
0: Mm. Behavioural science played quite a bit. Um, in those discussions around March, we've heard very little of it since, uh, behavioural scientists saying things like, look, you better lock down later because people aren't going to put up with this for long spells of time. Was that in any sense a useful contribution?
1: I think, I mean, behavioural science has played, I I would counter that it hasn't played a continued role. I I, I have huge respect um, in any and all of the discussions I've had, Mm -hmm. um, in any advice I've given at the input Of the behavioural scientists. They have been, I think, outstanding. Um, And I would just challenge whether the the weight of the behavioural science evidence actually was along the lines you say. Mm. Um, In fact, I believe that that a large number, hundreds of behavioural scientists actually wrote at some point last year to say the evidence that people would tire of lockdowns, uh, with all of that implied, Uh, was a guess and was not based on prior knowledge. And much would depend on how people responded to these things on incentives, disincentives, explanations, trust, communication, and also people seeing what was happening in the societies and communities they were part of. So I I don't think the behavioural scientists uh, said that, um, at least from the ones I listened heard and listened to, uh, were saying that there would be fatigue and we must take that into account.
0: You discussed the Prime Minister's role, obviously, quite a, quite a bit, both in the first wave, um, you know, that first very difficult decision uh, to, to make lockdown where you say, late, but maybe you could give him a break on a bit of that, given all the factors. You you don't give him um, an inch on that, though, in the second wave. How would you describe the Prime Minister's culpability for the deaths that followed um, from September through to the spring?
1: Yeah, I, I think in the, uh, as I say in the book, and you've just said, uh, in the in the early waves, I think the, this word lockdown and everything that was implied was such a, um, you know, no no European uh, had done it had had before, before twenty twenty. I'm not aware that any country outside wartime had imposed anything like those restrictions. Uh, and France, Italy, Spain. had had put them in place uh, a couple of weeks or so before the UK. uh, And I think the the decisions to introduce lockdown in March were an extraordinarily difficult thing at a time of very uncertain data. Um, We must be really clear that the data through February and March was was poor. Um, Knowledge of how much transmission there was in the country, uh, etc., was poor and it was very uncertain. I do feel that coming into the last quarter of 2020, and particularly September through to the end of the year, the UK was gathering some of, if not the best data anywhere in the world, both traditional public health data, impact on hospitalizations, the NHS, and also the genomic data uh, that was coming through uh, the COG UK. And at that moment, I think we weren't uncertain. Um, it was very clear from about the fifteenth of July that the numbers and transmission was going back up again, uh, and that in the absence of immu- immunity, uh, in the absence of vaccination, which was not going to be available during twenty twenty uh, at a population level, that we were going to see another wave in the autumn. I think that was very clear from from June July onwards. Uh, and yes, I do regret. I I don't think any of this, frankly, though, is about individuals. It's about Having a system and a structure in place, and as we learn lessons, I hope for the future, uh, it's about having a system and a structure in place that doesn't take out the importance of individuals at all, but it puts it in the context of having a structure and a system that works. And, yeah, I do regret the delays and the decisions in the fourth quarter of 2020, which led to the January, February wave and, and, yes, the loss of life then.
0: I absolutely take what you um, say about systems and and, um, the the IFG would absolutely support that. On the other hand, these were decisions by the prime minister in the end from every account that um, people have given of those discussions. And there's a lot of disagreement from 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 others. But in the end, it was his decision to um, to delay uh, a lockdown to try and find other ways. Um, Do you think people should criticise that or is it indeed it's the job of the Prime Minister to take his the best decision he thinks he can. And if deaths follow from that, that well that's the that's the consequence of the decision.
1: Yeah, I think in the end, of course there's accountability and, and, and you know, I'm I'm not a politician, nor would I, I wish to be, and it's a very tough series of choices you make. You're trying to trade off this against the other. But then yes, there has to be let a lessons learned. And and was the delays during the autumn of twenty twenty the right decision? It, it was not the right decision. Um, we we went into you know over fifth tragically over fifty percent of all deaths through this pandemic in the UK happened in a six or seven week window in January and February of 2021, and I, I think the data then was was very clear. Uh, the lockdown, the um, the, the uh, adherence to the lockdowns were remarkable. Um, uh, in fact, they remain remarkable today. Behaviour actually hasn't changed that much since the 19th of July, from what we can see either. The, the public and the population have been remarkably willing to um, to follow that guidance. Uh, and I think we could certainly have mitigated, not prevented altogether, mm-hmm. but I think we could certainly have mitigated the loss of life in January and February of 2021, had we made decisions on lockdown earlier, uh, mm-hmm. and, and kept them in place during November and December. Mm-hmm.
0: Which country would you look to um, to say, look, they've done really well? Yes, with the, 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 all, the, all the benefits of hindsight. But I mean, this has been the most extraordinary, brutal uh, experiment of countries picking their different strategies up against you know, um, uh, a common threat. And, you know, for a while it was Germany and then Australia, but co- countries have come in for huge praise at some points of the pandemic now don't always look so good. Is there a country well, you look to and think, look, they they got it right? I,
1: I think there are a number of countries um, that that have that have we could look to to learn lessons from as well. Um, and 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 I think where I would look to, and it's interesting the choices I make, um, South Korea, mm-hmm. I think has has uh, has done very very well Uh, i think vietnam has done very well and obviously that's a slightly biased judgment having spent almost 20 years there but i think vietnam is going through a tough time at the moment uh, with the delta variant now dominating transmission and numbers are going up but 18 months in i think vietnam has done extraordinarily well with limited resources Mm -hmm. norway Mm -hmm. i think norway has has had um, going into the pandemic a very strong social contract Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think has managed the pandemic very well. Yes, with a lot of resources, but that demonstrates that it's not just resources. Norway has done well, Vietnam has done well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I I do still look to New Zealand, although I think New Zealand and Australia have got a tough exit from the pandemic because they're going to have to now rely on population, total population vaccination to exit. But, But frankly, they've had a very small number of deaths by head of population. Uh, And I think on the whole, Australia and New Zealand have managed it very well. I could point to Singapore as well. If I pick out South Korea, though, (laughs) one of the reasons I think South Korea has done well is South Korea had a wake up call four or five years ago with an outbreak of the Middle East respiratory syndrome epidemic, which which really challenged them. Um, And to give credit to them, they looked at that and said, never again. And I think put in place uh, reforms and changes which allowed them this time round, in a much more challenging situation to do very well.
0: And what were those reforms? Because I mean, you're talking about countries which did react very fast. I guess that's one of the points you're making. Um, went for very early uh, lockdowns or, or curbs. Uh, it might be these later periods, particularly the countries not having such access to vac- uh, vaccines that are struggling um are to get get the the exit strategy, as you said. But the lessons to you, they're they're about spotting these clusters of cases and about moving fast.
1: Exactly. And South Korea, four or five years ago, there was a a single individual um, flew into South Korea from the Middle East with the Middle East respiratory syndrome. It's a a cousin, if you like, of the virus that's caused COVID-19. And that single individual led to, I think, over two hundred cases within uh, South Korea in the capital, in Seoul, because the individual went from clinic to clinic to clinic before he or she got the information they needed, and it was clustered. And there was there was an amp- uh, a ripple amplifying effect in each of the clinics. What South Korea did is it strengthened its public health capacity. It invested in public health. It, it uh, engaged in uh, in uh, scenario planning and also in um, uh, war gaming, um, for want of a better word, what would we do in this sort of circumstance? Uh, and they increased their capacity for testing and uh, and uh, uh, clustering and, and communication and trust. Mm. Um, uh, Vietnam, similarly, since Vietnam, remember, went through SARS. Uh, very good friend of mine, Carlo Abani died of SARS-1 in Hanoi. Uh, and Vietnam learnt a lot of lessons from SARS one, and indeed from bird flu, and uh, uh, and I think acted earlier, um, and and yes, in a more draconian way in some ways, uh, but as a result avoided certainly the first waves, and South Korea has so far managed to avoid second and subsequent waves as well. It shows the importance of, which is which is why I, I hope I, I appreciate not everyone will agree with me, but why I hope that the focus of a, of a public inquiry. is is not on on individual blames, uh, but it's on learning lessons so that these events, these these truly disruptive cross-government, cross-society events, which I think are likely to become more frequent and more complex, we can learn lessons so that when these inevitably happen again, um, we will all globally and nationally perhaps be better prepared to respond to them.
0: So that brings us on to SAGE and scientific advice and how the UK government has, has used scientific, scientific advice, which I wanted to ask you about, um, because we indeed drew on our past experience. Um, you discussed whether Chris Whitty, who, who seemed perhaps um, more cautious than some of the other people around at the, the very beginning about whether to go for lockdown, influenced perhaps by the what was then thought to be an overreaction to swine flu. Uh, we also saw how much the pandemic, uh, the, the planning for pandemic flu Influence the UK's planning. How do you how do you learn lessons from this that aren't inevitably shaped by, um, you know, the, the the last thing you've you fought, um, that are applicable to what might come down the road?
1: Yeah, I, I think that is very important. I'll I'll come back to that. Why why you mustn't just prepare for the previous thing because the next thing won't look quite the same. Uh, and it's again it's about having resilience and a systems approach so that you don't just prepare for. Uh, uh, influenza or covid when you probably won't face a covid like event next it'll be subtly or or in a big way different um yeah i f- appreciate that that you know the, the book um i hope delivered this but it was sort of honest and transparent about what i felt at the time i i certainly do not want though to focus too much on an 18 month window when perhaps for a week or two at the start i was a little bit frustrated with chris as i'm sure he's been frustrated with me at times i i absolutely pay tribute to the role Chris and Patrick Balance mm-hmm. have played in the last 18 months. I mean, which, they which, have dealt with which things you do, which are which you do in the book. I'm just remarkable. picking up this, this comment um, early on in the book. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I think their their ability to retain dignity, retain in the tent, retain their scientific rigour and challenge and thoughtfulness has been absolutely extraordinary. and. And I think Britain has frankly been phenomenally lucky to have those two individuals uh, in the positions they, they've they been in. Um, and I think my view is that SAGE, uh, actually, I think the construct in the UK of, of every government department having a scientific advisor embedded within it, brought together across a network by the chief scientist, whatever we do, in my view, we mustn't throw that out. Mm. Um, And when I talk about, use the word science, I mean science in its very broadest context. Uh, I mean, of course, the medical and public health sciences, but I mean mathematics, I mean social sciences, behavioural sciences, psychology, ethics. I'm talking about in communication science as well. I'm talking about the very broadest and I, I think ensuring that they are embedded, but not embedded in a tagged along way, but embedded in the processes of thinking of government you, whatever you do, you can't just parachute that in when you need it. Mm. Uh, I think you, you build that trusting relationship between the broad range of science and policymakers and the civil service over years of building up language, trust, uh, communication strategies. Uh, and I think that is something that the UK can very, very strongly build on. I would see but that... So can, Sage, I, can, I, can I ask sorry
0: you that, um, Jeremy, what, what you would then do... Um, with SAGE and its role looking at looking at the role of SAGE over the last 18 months what would you keep and what would you change? Uh,
1: I would I would have as actually started to happen in the second half of next year I think the coming of the JBC the um I forget what it stands for now the joint, jo- joint uh, advice. yeah company. I think that was a really important advance um if you like standing a little bit back from the advice and bringing together um uh the full range of inputs not just from sage as it as it was but also from economics from behavioral data around you know where people were traveling and and everything else that is available uh to the government to put all that together in the jbc i think was a great great advance and i uh i think the sage's transparency which i believe that uh um, Patrick Balance played a critical role in ensuring that minutes of SAGE are available transparently to everybody to see, both the minutes and the summary and the background work. I think that needs to be available on, on day one. And I, would, I suppose I'd like to see a broader, um, transparently available set of data that sort of, if you like, mirrors SAGE, but as in economic evaluation, uh, social evaluation and others, that, that the the public and, the critically, policymakers can see in real time that total range of cross-government activity and data, and then be one would hope in the best position to be able to make the very tough decisions that have to be made.
0: Joint Biosecurity Centre, not Council. I, re- I realise. Do you think the governments um, use the phrase "sticking, uh, following the science" fairly, or did it sometimes do things that were not indeed supported by the science?
1: Well, again, it goes back to this, you know, often repeated mantra, which is, which is, you know, science is there to advise, and, and it is critical that politicians and policymakers make the choices, and that distinction is absolutely uh, respected. And I don't think policymakers and politicians should ever uh, totally follow all of the advice that comes into them. Um, uh, but I think what what is better is when it's clear what the advice is and why governments quite rightly sometimes have decided that they would not follow that advice because of other reasons. Um, uh, And that again comes back to, I think, the public having the same insight into the transparent thinking, not just of SAGE, but of the other elements that that are critical into making those decisions. And so I think it's totally right, obviously, that policymakers and politicians make the choices, uh, but i think they need to be clear where where they are following that scientific advice and, and when they are
0: not mm. i mean there's otherwise a risk that that people will think that un- scientists unelected advisers are, are are calling these decisions if you like as as opposed to the elected politicians and you do talk interestingly about the some of the, the um the, the, the kind of hate mail and criticism of scientists that um, that was directed your way and and, and at colleagues during all this Having said it's not all about individuals, and you know, I've said I absolutely buy that, but you do um, single out as have many uh, the the uh, um, value of Kate Bingham's appointment as head of the vaccines, and and you are express um, uh, surprise and more at Dido Harding's uh, appointment. How, what do you think, government? What, what again? What lessons should we learn from this? Well, I, th- I think what's
1: critical, and uh, you know, I'll I'll speak here for Kate Bingham's uh, appointment. You know, Kate uh, came steeped in knowledge about decision making about complex things like vaccines, and indeed, from her background in treatments, uh, Kate has spent years working in sifting through um, very complex science to try and decide, you know, in her case uh, where to invest and where to create new drugs and new interventions. I think that was totally aligned as an experience and expertise with what was required in the vaccine task force. Here you had a a range of science, some of it absolutely brilliant, Sarah Gilbert's work and and Andy Pollard's work in in Oxford on on the vaccine. And you had other areas uh, where the science was much weaker and the the willingness to to have to bring your expertise and experience to say we need a portfolio we're going to have to invest in a range of vaccines that we don't know which one's going to work maybe none of them we're going to have to do that at risk and at scale and have the confidence to do that and then yes make good decisions i think that is absolutely critical expertise and experience to bring to something like the vaccine task force in the complex world of public health And in Test, Trace and Isolate, the role of this uh, different tests, different ways you apply them, uh, the role of central government, the role of local authorities, the role of how testing and diagnostic fits into isolation, Test, Trace, Isolate, uh, and everything that goes with it. I felt, yes, that did need a degree of greater expertise in public health um, and building off what existed uh, with some extraordinarily good people who worked in that system. Um, to allow it to be enhanced. So I, I think expertise and experience is really critical. And I think Kate Bingham's uh, appointment to the Vaccine Task Force really shows that.
0: For people who want to know what you think of Dido-Harding, they can buy your book. Um, just before I turn to questions, where are we now? If you look at coronavirus globally, um, Britain is having Freedom Day um, plus a week or so. Other countries, it's still raging. You know, Where are we and how long is this going to be with us?
1: So I think this is a really important inflection point, really. And, and one of my major concerns is the rich world, maybe G7, G20, however you wish to define it, will gradually move in a increasingly what I call a good direction. The vaccines have been extraordinary. Um, their safety profile is remarkable. They're incredibly effective still against the Delta variant. They're incredibly effective at preventing us getting sick, going to hospital and dying. Um, and that has to be the number one. Priority. Western Europe, Europe, UK, um, Canada uh, has got access to those vaccines, and largely the population have trusted those vaccines and are having them. So, UK is at what uh, 90% one dose, 75% two dose in adults, overall population 55% vaccinated. Extraordinary achievement. Um, Tragically, though, um, the rest of the world is in a very different position. Imagine what it would be like in the UK at the moment with the Delta variant with its very high transmissibility if we didn't have vaccines. We would be in an absolutely dreadful place. Um, The NHS would be under um, almost impossible pressure with the Delta variant. And the truth is that is where the rest of the world is today uh, with less than 1% of populations in low-income countries uh, vaccinated. And, And why this is so important is because public health and scientifically it's the right thing to do because if we don't vaccinate the world we're in danger of generating new variants which like the delta variant will come back to all of us in the future and they may be much worse than delta but there is also of course a very strong ethical and moral argument uh, that if we leave countries very uh, inequitable access to the vaccines then the world that we will have in the whatever the post-covid world is will be fragmented, inequitable, and any chance of us drawing the world together to address the issues of climate change, drug resistance, energy use, water access, whatever we think of the big challenge of the 21st century, the geopolitics will not allow that if we have a east-west division and increasingly a north-south division. So for geopolitics, 21st century, for science and public health, and a moral and scientific uh, ethical argument, we have to make the vaccines available globally. And I'm afraid to date, we fail to do that. And I worry that as the rich world comes into a better place, as UK is today, we will uh, forget that the rest of the world is not where we are
0: today. OK, thank you for that. Let's turn to the questions. There's A, a lot of come in. I want to start with two about long Covid. One from Dr. Giles Carden at Lancaster University saying, can you say something about the prevalence of long COVID in children as they're unvaccinated? And along with that, from John Vickers um, in Cambridge saying, what economic analysis exists or is in progress for the long term cost of long COVID?
1: Yeah, these are great questions. And of course, you know, we must also just have humility to say the long COVID we know at the moment, we don't know. Any other long-term consequences of this infection, which may not become apparent for years to come, long COVID is real. Um, I don't think it's a single entity, and that's slightly complicating how we look at it. I think it is a combination of different um, clinical syndromes, which will be difficult to tease, tease, tease apart. But there is no doubt that that people, not just severely infected, uh, but those also mildly infected, a significant number of them, somewhere between twenty and thirty percent may continue to have uh, some degree of long-term consequences three months and beyond. Yes, shortness of breath, but also what people describe as brain fog, not able to concentrate, tired, uh, and of course in young people who are going through education as well as people in workplaces and indeed the elderly, that can be very disruptive. To John's point, I'm not aware of that. I haven't seen the data on the economic analysis of that, but it will be very important. To have that, as well as to develop treatments that prevent that 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 can treat it. Hopefully, uh, but the best way of preventing long COVID is to drive down transmission, to reduce the amount of infection in our communities, and to get vaccinated. Because I think there is increasing evidence that vaccines prevent you against getting long COVID. Now, the JCVI, the Joint Committee on Vaccines, um, is looking at the vaccination of teenagers. And many other countries have now moved to vaccinating teenagers. And I think that is something we're going to have to very seriously consider over the summer months and before the winter, uh, the autumn return of schools in September.
0: And what would your view be?
1: I think at the moment, I I was talking to Singapore this morning about um, vaccinations. Uh, It is a difficult one. There's no easy decisions here. On balance, I'm in favour of offering vaccine to 12-year-olds and above. Um, but I think absolute trust in both. Actually, Britain is, is in a, you know, the MHRA, the regulator in the UK, oh. is an extraordinarily strong regulator. And the JCVI, I think, is an exceptional committee looking at uh, advice to governments. And uh, uh, that's a personal opinion. I personally would, would offer vaccine to teenagers over the summer before we return in, in the autumn. But very importantly, I wouldn't do that at the expense of not making vaccines available globally. I think the the pressure should be on us to make vaccines available to vulnerable populations and healthcare workers globally before we vaccinated uh, people under the age of 18 in this country.
0: Okay, thanks very much. That's uh, super clear. All right, let's go to a pair of questions about the WHO and its, its role in this. One from Jill Rutter, um, indeed, of the IFG saying, what does the COVID experience tell us about the adequacy of the World Health Organization? How does it need to be reformed to?" Um, better help deal with future pandemics and one from Hillary saying should the who uh, put pressure to on to to ban wet markets um, and sanction countries who uh who don't comply for example China indeed should China face penalties going back to your points at the beginning about the um very interconnected world that we're living in
1: yeah so I'll I'll start with the first one the most important reform to who in my view is is for the world to back it <laughs> um, you you know it, over the last 20 years and particularly over the last five before before covid um, including with but not limited to the U- united states decision under the previous administration to withdraw from who undermines it Um, Countries around the world, actually UK is is an exception here, but many countries around the world are not paying their fair due to the WHO, uh, particularly for the non-hypothecated funding of WHO. So WHO is constantly underfunded and it's often politically undermined. Um, Personally, again, as with the IPPR report from Helen Clark and Aaron Sharif, I would uh, make the Director General... Uh, elected by the member states but I would give her or him a single seven or eight year term because I think constantly having to go to re-election weakens the director general I think she or he could be a more powerful advocate of public health globally if they had a single term Um, and uh, I think the most important reform is if you're going to make WHO accountable for, for helping deliver public health then don't um, take away the authority and the responsibility don't don't give it the accountability without giving it the authority um, the who is not a police organization it, it it doesn't have the it can't sanction it can criticize but it can't sanction it doesn't have that capacity um, and i would like to see it uh, become the place that uh, talented young individuals from around the world who are interested in public health go to as the number one place to go to in in global health. Um, The second question, um, uh, wet markets, uh, wet markets were were undoubtedly the source of um, uh, SARS-1. I believe they will uh, prove uh, to be the source of of SARS-2 and of course many, many others. But whatever you do, don't, don't drive the animal trade, including wildlife trade, into uh, under, under
0: –
1: you've got to be really careful that you drive it into the, the black market, um, that you have no sight of it, no regulation over it. Um, I think the answer, as Hong Kong did after 1997, bird flu, is to make your wet market safer to stop the animal trade in wild animals like pangolins or civet cats. Um, Try and encourage people to move away from thinking some of these are aphrodisiacs or or other great enhancers of our lives. Um, uh, Regulate the the wet markets and make them fit for purpose. If you ban them all, I'm afraid that awful animal trade will go on. You'll have no sight of it and and you won't know what's going on. And I actually think that would be worse. Mm. And finally, on sanctions, I, I'm not in favor of sanctions. What would you sanction? Um, you know, take the Delta variant. It probably maybe first arose in India. Uh, the UK was probably the first place it came at mass. And Britain has probably seeded continental Europe with the Delta variant. Do you sanction India or Britain? I don't think so. I think the responsibility of all nations is to prevent these epidemics, share the information when you have them, and work together as a globe, because this isn't a nation state problem, it's a global problem.
0: Thanks very much indeed for that. OK, let's go go to one uh, right back to where we are now from Lizzie Roberts at The Telegraph. What do you make of the recent data showing a drop in positive cases? Are you hopeful we've reached the peak of the third wave? And do you envision, envision we will need lockdowns again going into the autumn or winter?
1: So you can only celebrate the reduction in the the, uh, the caseloads. It is far too early on the 26th of Monday of July, a week after restrictions were lifted, to know the impact of the final lifting of those restrictions. Um, but I think people's behaviour has changed uh, to take Chris Whitty's advice much more gradually and much more cautiously than perhaps anybody could have imagined 10 days ago. I think the big change in terms of lifting restrictions was actually the one, the prior change,
0: mm.
1: um, rather than the 19th of July. And and to give credit to policymakers and government choices, that previous restriction was lifted, waited five weeks, the data wasn't really good enough, and it was extended for another period of time. I think that's great decision making. Um, and that's why I was in favour of the 19th of July lifting with Chris Whitty's caveat. Mm-hmm. Gradual and cautious and certainly when I go out uh, of of my house I do see a more gradual and cautious lifting of restrictions and I I would hope that therefore we will not see a massive rebound uh, if we continue to be gradual and cautious about what we do. Schools closed as well in the, in the meantime and that will have made a difference. We're in the summer months that makes a marginal difference uh, and I hope beyond hope that we don't have to go back into, into lockdowns this autumn um if we keep going with the vaccination schedule if we keep being gradual and cautious through the summer then I do believe we can avoid it in the fourth quarter of this year yes okay but let's stop new variants coming (laughs) Um, because the biggest risk now I believe is new variants and that's why I'm so strongly arguing for driving down transmission globally and making vaccines available globally
0: we might come back to just that point. Uh, but thank you for that. And Xantha Leitham from the Daily Mail, I hope that also covers your question about why do you, why do you think uh, cases in the UK are now falling? OK, let's go to one from uh, back back onto the question of, of Sage, um, one from Gus O'Donnell, who says, how well do you think Sage worked, and how might we improve the way we provide expert advice to the politicians?
1: <laughs> Thanks, Gus. Um... <laughs> I've read his work on this recent um, some months ago. Um, uh, I think you you build off strengths and things that may not have worked perfectly, but on the whole, the whole system um, is something to build off. I go back scientific advice within every arm of government, um, uh, the chief scientists pulling together uh, and. The chief medical officer. I do think there's got to be a stronger link between that advice and then pulling the levers that make a difference. Um, Advice is one thing, but in a fast moving, exponentially growing epidemic, if you advise on day one, you pull a lever on day 10, and the lever doesn't have its impact till day 30, doubling every three days, you've lost control. And I think we've got to get better about how the advice, once it's accepted, is then turned into an actionable thing, which makes a difference quicker in a fast moving. And I believe that the lag phase is there when you're doubling every three days was too long. Um, uh, And and I think we've got to get better at turning advice into a decision and a decision into a pulling of a lever, which then will make an impact. And if, if there's a delay at every stage in that, then I'm afraid, You'll lose control of a exponentially increasing problem, um, and that's where I think, to Gus's point, bringing that sage advice, and I'm not in government, but into I assume the cabinet office, so that it can then be actioned across government, um, is for me perhaps the single most important lesson.
0: Okay, thanks. Let's 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 move from that to one. Uh, Peter Williamson's asked one that I know um, very much debated within the uh, the the ifg and and elsewhere how much does do differences in scientific advice uh, certainly in the emphasis um how much does that become problematic for either the government or the public
1: it is the scientific method and there's no i think it would be wrong to 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 um uh, to 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 not have that scientific approach uh, science makes progress by asking a question, constructing a hypothesis, gathering the data and then taking that data to to take the next step in, in science. Now, in a very fast moving epidemic, as I've just described, you've got to do that really quickly. And you've got to go back to some experience from previous epidemics like South Korea. You've got to go back to some expertise and sometimes you have to make a decision before you have all the data. That was the situation in March of 2020. Um, You've got to be willing to act with uncertainty. Mike Ryan said it very well. If during Ebola, if during COVID, you wait until you've got all of the information you need to be absolutely sure, uh, you'll be too late. You don't have that luxury. You've got to go earlier and harder and deeper than you think you have to, and that's very, very uh, uncomfortable. But I don't think the range of scientific views is something to be negative about. I just think that range of scientific views, and we've seen it in Covid, I believe we saw it in climate change. I think we've seen it in years ago in tobacco control. In the end, that range of scientific views has got to be challenged uh, to provide the data on which those views are held. and uh, And then the system, cabinet office, politicians, civil servants, scientists, um, must be must must have the ability to challenge that scientific advice and ask the right questions.
0: OK, thank you for that. Let's go to, um, there's an interesting one from Rob Pickersgill about the NHS. And I was very struck that the NHS didn't feature particularly prominently in your book. I mean, Not that many me- mentions of it at all. He's asking whether the NHS, he says, he, he argues that in, in policy terms, the NHS seems to have been almost passive during the crisis. Could this enormous organisation have been more proactive in infection control, in anticipation, planning, setting up, Clinical tra- treatment regimes in specifying PPE requirements. Um, now, I think that many people in the NHS would push back on that, looking at what was um, what was uh, indeed done about finding clinical um, responses to it. But I was just wondering what your view is of what the NHS should learn about this.
1: To me, the- As I saw Rob Wood as well, I mean, just enormous praise for the nurses, doctors, cleaners, administrators, everybody within the NHS. I mean, you will have friends, as I've got, that work Mm. in the NHS and the pressure they've been under is just extraordinary um, for months now. I think the most important point for me here is actually a theme, again, that runs through advice, it runs through Public Health England, and it's certainly true of the NHS. What you have before a crisis will to a degree determine how well you deal with a crisis. If you have a system which is working at 100% or beyond capacity all of the time, if you add in an unexpected or or at least, you know, black swan events like this, not even at this scale, you will tip it over and it will not be able to function as you would hope it would do. Uh, um, and I think the the lesson for me is you cannot run your NHS or your health system at maximum capacity all of the time, uh, there has to be more resilience um, and resilience. uh, The balance of resilience and efficiency has to swing back a little bit more to resilience, um, that it can cope with the unexpected, uh, that it has the right people. I mean, the the opening up of the uh, Nightingale hospitals was a really important thing to do. But unless you have the people who can work in them, uh, building a building isn't going to be enough. And and uh, the the NHS, I'm afraid, for too long, has been running at a total efficiency uh, at the expense of having the resilience to cope when extra demand inevitably hits. And 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 we know none of us really know what a collapsed national health system would look like. But the NHS came very close to that in January and February of this year. And uh, and I'm sure in some points, I'm afraid not everybody was treated totally as they doctors and nurses would have wished
0: Mm. oh might it look in fact what italy looked like in the first months of the of the pandemic i mean the the, the good health of 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 an affluent country with doctors having to make choices about who they treated or not yeah Um, that was
1: for me one of the real low points a very emotional call in in, uh, in February, March of 2020, talking to intensive care doctors in Northern Italy and listening to the fact that here a G7 country was having to make choices about who to treat and who not to treat um, in Northern Italy. And that phone call will, yeah, will always remain with me. It was harrowing.
0: Mm. And Nick Fincham, I hope that that covers um, at least part of your question about about the NHS this winter. Thank you for asking that. Go to one from Rachel Cooper, who says, what can we learn from coronavirus and and this pandemic um, for combating AMR? I assume she means antimicrobial resistance. uh, Obviously a growing problem.
1: Yeah, it is. And it, again, it has many of the features of co pandemics, in a sense, is that what happens in Britain will influence what happens in Delhi and will happen influence what happens in Mexico. I'm afraid, um, I believe that the 21st century challenges, not just in health, but broadly, are going to be defined by our ability to work transnationally, um, because infectious diseases will cross borders. Um, I think it comes back to surveillance. I think it comes back to knowing what you're facing. Uh, the absence of data in March of 2020 uh, was, was, um, was a major factor. Our absence of knowledge about drug resistance globally at the moment is, is poor, frankly, uh, and therefore we can't see it. Um, so I think surveillance, and when we think about better surveillance for pandemics, I think that surveillance has to provide utility all of the time. And I would like to see surveillance for epidemics built into surveillance for tuberculosis, for HIV, for malaria, for drug resistant infections, for typhoid. Because if you don't build systems which are being used all of the time, when you want them in a crisis, they won't be there. So much better to build sustainable systems that you are using in clinical medicine and public health all of the time. And then they will be there. Korea again demonstrates that. Um, so I think there are a lot of lessons and then critically, lesson from COVID for AMR, drug resistance, is to make sure we have the interventions, whether they are hand washing or they are new drugs or their new diagnostic tests or their new vaccines, have them now, even though you may think I don't necessarily need them, but you will need them. And if you wait a year, um, you'll have the devastating consequences of COVID. So. Think ahead, what do you need, what science needs to be done, and critically, what manufacturing needs to be done in order to incentivize the new interventions that you're going to need?
0: Mm. Thank you for that. and i and I've got to ask you finally one uh, that I thought was going to come up in the in the in the questions from others but hasn't. And it is whether it, what you would do about um, vaccine hesitation and whether you think steps which some governments, including this one, are looking at of of taking measures that would essentially compel people to do it if they wanted to take part in some things, but uh, obviously France looking at that as well, whether those are justified.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm much more in favour that public health measures, including vaccination, are done through a basis of knowledge and choice and trust and communication. I think public health works best when people uh, want to have it rather than when something's imposed on them Um, and i think actually the uk uh, has had such remarkable vaccine uptake compared to essentially every other country because prior to the pandemic britain actually uk actually had very good high levels of population trust in vaccines Uh, actually it was much lower in france and some other countries and i think some of the measures that have been taken are probably appropriate in France because they've had low uptake in certain communities. But I think in the UK, we would be much better advised to explain, uh, to use. Jonathan Van Tam has been a brilliant communicator throughout the pandemic. Um, JCVI, use the systems we have in place and persuade people uh, rather than coerce people um, uh, for things like vaccines. Um, But we should remember that vaccine hesitancy in most of the world is not the problem. It's vaccine mm-hmm. access. Yeah. Uh, and we shouldn't confuse the two.
0: Well, thanks very much indeed. Um, we're going to have to draw to a close there. So I'm sorry I couldn't take in many uh, more of the really excellent questions. Ian Scott, thank you for joining us from Singapore, asking about Australia, which I think we've partly covered in this. Others uh, joining us from uh, Japan and other places asking about uh, the source of the virus. There's some terrific questions there and uh, just apologies, I couldn't get in more of them. But thank you all very much indeed for, uh, for joining us. And of course, Jeremy Farrah, thank you very much.